Hi and welcome. I am Matt O'Callaghan, your host for today's podcast discussing digital identity. For those first-time listeners, I lead our financial services regulatory practice here in Asia. And joining me today is Cyrus Poker, our co-head of fintech and partner in our London office. Cyrus. Hi, Matt. It's great great to be here with you all today, uh, albeit digitally. And Teresa Allen is a principal associate in our TNT practice and based in our Frankfurt office. Teresa. Hi, everyone. Hi, Matt. Hi, Cyrus. Really excited to have this opportunity to record this podcast with you together. Three excited panel members, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about why digital identity is so hot right now. But for every proponent of a digital identity, there's a cacophony of alarmists who claim it will be the end of personal freedoms as we know it. So whilst the current pandemic has exacerbated the need for a discussion to find that middle ground to better identify, authenticate and authorise individuals and companies, um, we need to do that in a way that everyone also trusts. And why do we need to do that? Well, it, it could be because we want to be able to distribute government funds more, more rapidly uh, to those who need it. Or, you know, we, we have all the track and trace apps. How do we do that in a way so we can minimise the impact of the broader population, but in a way that people feel safe and secure? So today we're going to talk about what digital identity is uh, and what it could be if it's done right, but also where it could go horribly wrong. Uh, we're also going to touch on some of its applications and potential uses in the financial services space in terms of how it can be used in the onboarding space and, and specifically as a feature of an AML program. We're going to finish off with like where regulators are on that journey. Before we get into it, why don't we describe what a digital identity utopia is? It's important that most of us recognise that we already have some form of digital identity, uh, whether that be a tax identifier, travel documents, or health records that are held by or through the government. And we, we always exclude the UK on the health side, given that they hold everything through paper. But there are so many different ways in which we have a digital identifier. I even talk about, you know, the, the different sort of social media settings that you have and the way in which you've self-identified yourself through that means. An identity is really just one or more attributes or identifiers that really verify that person's uniqueness. We talk about biometrics. We can talk about you know, other sort of features such as, you know, your passport or birth dates. Um, you know, there are so many different ways in which, you know, you can uh, have a, a unique identifier. And some of that information is self-certifying, like what street were you born on and who was your first dog? Um, but others could be certified by government bodies or financial institutions. And really that level of where you are on the spectrum in terms of self-certifying to those that are certified by government bodies or financial institutions really goes to that trust level and that allows the identity to be authenticated and ultimately determines where it can and how it could be potentially used. I guess the final point is like you've identified someone, uh, you've authenticated that that is the true self uh, and then there's the authorization piece. So where does the recipient of that information allow that identity then to be used? Uh, and some of that could be self-controlled by the individual or by the company, and some of it could be controlled by the financial institution or the government body. And, you know, we see that in, in a whole range of different forms, whether that be, you know, the rapid form filling you have on your iPhone, the use of digital signatures for uh, entering into contracts, identity authentication when you open a bank account, or even regulatory compliance uh, for AML checks. 
But look, that's enough from me. Let's dive into it and bring Cyrus and Teresa into the discussion. So we have a broad outline of what a digital identity is, but why, why are we talking about it today? And you know, a bunch of lawyers sitting virtually in a room. You know, so why do we get excited about it, Cyrus? Thanks, Matt. It, it, it's been said. It's been said before, but data is is really the new oil. We all generate vast amounts of data. And, and our data is collected, scraped, bought, sold, collated, and shared. All of that shows that our data is becoming increasingly important with the way that we interact with the world at large, but with financial services uh, firms in particular. And I think if we're able to unlock the potential that a digital identity uh, has to ensure uh, frictionless payments, for example, or in enabling me to interact with a single financial ent- uh, financial services entity without having to repeatedly verify who I am uh, or where I live or what water company provides me with water. It is incredibly powerful, both for consumers and for financial services firms themselves. I really like the term you use, Cyrus, unlock the potential, because I think for me, the, the huge potential and benefit digital identity is offering us. There is so much potential out there and it just waits to be unlocked. Um, and it's also because of the vast amount of use cases that the amount of verification authentication you need differs. And so having that digital identity offers us to use that flexibility and to react to that. I think when talking about unlocking the potential, uh, we have to mention financial inclusion as one of the use cases and economic growth. So when looking at it first from a company perspective, there's a huge potential to unlock efficiency. Uh, We've seen numbers that when using digital identity, it could reduce the cost of customer onboarding up to 90%. So when you look at the 90%, oh my God, what could I do with that? free resources. Looking at the financial inclusion piece, we've got currently 1 billion people around the globe who don't have any form of legally recognized form of ID, and especially women in low-income countries, that we're talking about 45% of these women. But even half of the world's population has some form of ID, but no digital trail. So if we can get these people involved and get them financially included, then we then we are talking about the potential of 1.7 billion people who could gain access to financial services who didn't have that before. Financial service, I mean, the opportunity does sound enormous. I mean, like n- not only just from operational efficiency, but even just bringing in this, you know, th- these this potential size of customer base, you know, and replacing you know a lot of the analog materials with digital materials, and you know, improving the accuracy level that sits around that. I mean, it does sound like a, an enormous opportunity. I, yeah, I think that's right, Matt. And I think, you know, as data sets become larger and richer and more textured and drawn from different sources, both the, the opportunities increase, but also, you know, there's going to be a lot of work to be done to reassure customers that, that actually that they're not inadvertently excluded by virtue of the data that they're presenting when they show their digital identity. As these data sets grow, and as as the application of AI to those data sets increases, 
that there's a real sort of danger, I think, of sort of, you know, algorithmic blindness and, and a sort of self-fulfilling set of events, which means that inadvertently small groups that, that have particular characteristics or, or tick certain checks are excluded from perhaps, you know, preferential interest rates or a certain type of mortgage. There's also the question of a digital identity delivering such a vast amount of data to, to a financial services firm that it actually has the potential to change the very nature of the financial instrument that they're selling to you. So, for example, you know, if we take insurance, the whole concept of insurance is the mutualization of risk. And yet, if an insurance company knows me uh, incredibly well, knows exactly how I drive, knows how many times I wash my car, uh, where I keep it, where I travel, you know, there's real risk, I think, that in the future, that mutualization of risk element of insurance simply goes away and you end up, you know, having having an insurance company writing a policy just for me. And I think it's getting that balance right in ensuring that a digital identity is able to facilitate an individual's access to financial services, to pick up Teresa's point, to to help include currently debanked or underbanked parts of society, whilst at the same time uh, reassuring customers that they won't be inadvertently excluded through a system which ultimately they may feel they have little control over. Cyrus, I think what you also mentioned is there's still a lot of work to be done, right? So, So there is no silver bullet yet and no perfect solution. And we don't even have to look at the data collection piece, um, but it's also basic things such as connectivity and network coverage, or rather access to digital devices. And so these are all things I think we need to look at it. But as you said, there needs to be the balance and what, to, what do we want to achieve? And having these data sets again to actually strengthen the level of trust and confidence you've got in a person who you previously would have said without that data set, I'm not going to grant that person access to my services. That really is, I guess, one of the risks. I mean, you want to be able to present your uniqueness, your identity, but you don't want to present it in such a way that it, it results in so much information being available that it could ultimately prejudice you. And you know, getting that balance right is all going to come back to, to the framework. And you know, we'll talk about some of the principles that FATF have come up with to try and help governments and fintech providers and, and regulated entities to, to be able to tackle some of those issues. Moving towards a digital identity may really help decouple the growing fintech market from the existing bricks and mortar banks. I think to the extent that fintechs uh, and other new entrants in the financial services space are able to feel confident that they can rely on a digital identity in order to offer services, both from you know, their own legal and regulatory perspective, but from a commercial perspective as well, I think that will really accelerate the take up of those services. Thanks, Cyrus. I, I think you know that is important, and and one of um, one of the NGOs that are, you know we've been sort of tracking and, and sort of looking at a lot of their work is uh, the Women in Identity NGO um, that is you know particularly focused on advocating for parity with respect to opportunity reward recognition and professional mobility, and ensuring that a lot of those current biases and limitations do not result in minorities 
um, suffering as a result of this, you know, this transition into into the digital framework. But that also will will play very heavily into for, for a lot of our clients in the banking space to ensure that they they are also part of that conversation uh, to eliminate some of those biases and issues. Just to finish off, I, I guess on on some of the risks. I mean, we we haven't talked about like the cyber risk aspects. Um, but you know, obviously, that's a it's a growing area. Um, it's it's a case of if not when, you know, ensuring that the the right level of security and controls exist around digital identity because it will be very difficult to get an identity back once it's lost, uh, particularly in the cyberspace. But I thought we use this as a as a transition into that framework discussion. You know, I think you know as we as we move um, away from a, a more analog world. And, and we, we look at some of the opportunities that are already opening up. I think open banking has, has certainly been one area that is a, a bit of a shining light in this regard. And, and you know, we're at different sort of levels of progression in different markets. You know, here in Hong Kong, uh, we, we've got an open banking regime, but you know, I think by and large, it's still largely in the control, um, I, I guess, of, of those, um, those firms that have, have potentially the most to lose by opening up that data. Uh, and if we contrast that with, say, other markets like the UK and Australia, there, there has been a little bit more um, openness uh, and trying to put a lot more of that power, particularly the consumer data rights, uh, back into the hands of individuals um, so that they can control where and how their data is used. But I think that is that is really going to be sort of this key sort of balancing act between um, you know, individuals and companies and financial services providers um, and, and different users to make sure that you know those needs and you know the, the the work that has been put into a curate the data set um, is offset against the, um, the the rights of the individual. And and but the point you're raising, um, I think that's also across the globe in different geographies. It has different elements there. So if you look at the financial inclusion piece, people may not be as concerned how their data is used in the end. But on the other hand, in more mature markets mentioning, for example, the uh, the EU, people are very much concerned right now who holds their data and um, what what's being done with it. And so the control piece is going to be a key element there. I mean, certainly, you know, GDPR has been a, a real sort of bellwether for other markets in terms of just privacy and consumer data rights just generally. So I, I think, you know, Developments as we as we see a convergence more towards that standard, which we've already seen, um, you know, happening in the US and, and in different parts of Asia, but also I think just the regulators getting together and talking a little bit more about you know reg tech tools that are out there, uh, advances in biometrics and where and how they can be used in KYC. Um, I, I think you know they're all really positive developments. Um, and, and Teresa, I mean. Just back to you. I mean, you were you were talking to to Saras and I about um, some of the the challenges associated with layers of government being involved in the journey to develop that framework and some of the friction that that comes up. Yes. So if if the government gets involved too much, it again raises the concern of people, and and actually it it it's the flip side then of the trust piece, um, because the concern is that the government has too much access or control of the data, and so. I think, as you said, having the balance right is really key there. If you look at it for regulated entities, they would want to have a government involved. And that's also in the FEDEF guidance. If you've got a government endorsing a solution, then there's less risk involved. And so one, one example is also in Germany, there's an innovation challenge. 
sponsored by the government to actually bring together players across the industries, also scientific research institutes, but also municipalities and, and the government as such to come to common ground and to find a solution together for a digital identity which can be applied in all the different use cases. And I'm very excited to see where, where this will go. Cyrus, do you have for the UK? I think it all boils back to this element of trust and how quickly can trust be developed in whichever system it is used to further the digital identity agenda. I think what we have seen in the payment space and, and in the fintech space is that, you know, actually, although a lot of people start off believing that this must be a decentralised project with limited government or regulatory intervention, I suspect that where we may end up is that, you know, for a digital identity concept to really thrive, it does need that kite mark of regulation uh, surrounding it to, to ensure that there is a base level of confidence in the system, to ensure that there is a ability for redress if you believe that your digital identity has been used to prejudice you. And so I do think there is an important role for regulators to play in shaping the framework for a digital identity. Now, whether or not that ends up being a government-sponsored programme or something that is generated from the private sector, I think may well depend on particular markets and on particular sensitivities. But I think that the, the regulatory overlay will be important in, in ensuring the mass take-up and the sort of mass confidence in the system. So, I mean, that, that's a really good point for us to, to start finishing off on. Um, I think, you know, for a lot of our clients, there's a great opportunity here to really engage with the existing tools um, which use the digital identity. And, and whether that be in the onboarding process, the ongoing engagement and dealing that you have, have with your clients or customers, or ways in which you interact with service providers uh, or suppliers um, and how you can do that more efficiently. I think, you know, sort of pushing each of those elements, you know, to, to be more open to, to some of the changes that are coming down and to try and help sort of move that conversation forward, I think is, you know, is, is really important. And then I guess the second part is, you know, FATF have provided some great guidance, you know, to, to governments and regulated entities and, and the fintechs around what, you know, digital identity could be and, and what that framework needs to look like. But it is really important to participate and be part of that conversation, both from your own perspective and the firm that you're working for, but also for your clients, because the more that engagement and the better the, better the engagement, um, the better the outcome is, is likely to be and the more likely it is to be adopted. And, and I think, you know, as we, as we look across the sort of the changing um, ways in which this is being developed in each of the markets, it's going to be important to understand some of those nuances that exist between them. And Matt, I mean, Teresa even... Saris, any last comments from you? Matt, Matt, I think this is even more important to get involved because of the currently existing overlap between the different regulations and because of the evolving technology. So if you look at digital identity, you're also looking at AI, at blockchain, etc. So it's really important to become involved at an early stage. Yeah, I mean, I think the only, the only thing I'd add to that is that you know, the, the current COVID situation ha has pushed this conversation you know, further up the agenda, both, both at a government level and international level and a regulatory level. And so there's never really been a better time to engage with this type of conversation to, to ensure that your voice is heard and you help shape 
to, to, to shape the debate. Now, I think there is absolutely no question on the road that we're now all travelling on. We will get to a digital identity which is universally used at some point in the future. I think the only question now is what will that form of digital identity look like and, and what will the safeguards be around it? But I think, thankfully, the days of walking into a bank with your utility bill, your passport and your driving licence are fast receding into history. So, I mean, look, th- thank you, Cyrus, Teresa. I mean, we, we've really only scratched the surface on this topic um, and we're going to include some relevant materials in the notes um, for, for our clients who, who would like further materials to, uh, to read over on this. Our podcasts cover a wide range of topics um, that our clients are interested in and, and what we're advising our clients on, but we'd love to hear from you if you have any other topics of interest. Um, I'm saying a farewell. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, everyone.